Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. Joining me this week for the first time is Sarah Blair. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Good, I'm really intrigued by this idea and I'm excited to be here. Thank <laughs> you for inviting me on this journey. <laughs> no, I well, I, I wanted to get you on because... I don't think it's out yet, and it won't be by the time this episode airs, but we recorded for the X-Cast, the X-Files podcast, and it was such good fun. It was, yeah. Yeah, I actually just finished editing just today. I think I'm going to finish it up, cleaning up and all that. So, yeah, it's going to wow. be fun. <laughs> it's how, how, much of, how much of the two of us gushing about which Pelegi <laughs> did you have to cut from the final edit because <laughs> I think I it felt like it was about half of the recording <laughs> yeah I left a good amount of poor Skinners and this is terrible and sad and so you know <laughs> but I think we got some thoughtful insight in there as well so hopefully it balances out but yeah <laughs> well it was a lot of fun and because of your your love of the X-Files and the kind of sort of weird, is it supernatural, is it government conspiracy type themes that happen in, in that show? I've picked a subject that's kind of along those lines for you. Something okay. that will hopefully intrigue you and maybe creep you out. And most importantly, I'm really hoping you've not actually heard of before. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to be cool about it and pretend I haven't heard about it before if I have, but I'm pretty sure it'll be a surprise. <laughs> well, the topic is the Dyatlov Pass incident. I have not heard of this. I don't think. No? No. Okay. Oh, that's good. I say that's good, but I've got to pronounce a lot of Russian names now. And <laughs> as my listeners will, will be fully aware, I am not good with pronunciation. So this could be an awful experience for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get into our story, I just want to take a moment to talk to you about The Cosplay Journal, a new coffee table magazine by friend of the show, Holly Rose, focusing on the diversity and craft of cosplay. The Cosplay Journal is out now, and I've read the first issue. It's a great read, full of informative articles and beautiful photographs. I'm a geek myself, but I'm not a cosplayer, yet I still found a lot in this magazine to give me a deeper look into this part of geek culture. The book has craft-focused articles on sewing, armour building and makeup, as well as some interviews with some incredible cosplayers, some professional, some simply being the perfectionist amateur. They ask, are cosplay guests worth it in their opinion piece article, and have a handy guide for cosplayers on how to survive a con, which is advice worth reading even if you're not a cosplayer. The Cosplay Journal is available now. You can find it on Amazon for just $9.99, so make sure you pick up your copy today so that you don't miss out. In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in the Soviet Union. 
Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineer student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, was the leader who assembled a group of nine other skiers for the trip, most of whom were fellow students. Now, this is the hardest paragraph for me here, because it's a list of the group members. No, no. (laughs) Good luck. There's Igor Dyatlov, who's in charge of it, Yuri Doroshenko, Ludmina Dubinia, Yuri Kruvonishenko, Alexander Kolovetov, Zineda Kolmogorova, Rustem Slobodin, Nikolai Thribu Ringolias, uh, Semyon Zolotoreo, and Yuri Yudin. Well done. That's a lot of names. I'm g- probably yeah. going to have to re record those after looking at pronunciations. <laughs> I always think I should put in there, I should look up and put in there like the phonetic pronunciations. Yeah. And I, and I never do. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. I'm wondering now, I might have an idea of possibly what the story is about. I'm going to see if I'm right, but I won't okay, say anything. Okay. I don't want to spoil it. But I think I have a possible inkling. Mm, if it's the I'm one intrigued I'm now. About. Yeah. Please if it's continue. not, I'm interested to find out what you're thinking it might be as well. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. So each member of the group were experienced grade two hikers with ski tour experience and will be receiving grade three certification upon their return. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 300 kilometers in total. The goal of the expedition was to reach Otorten, a mountain 10 kilometers north of the site of the incident. This route in February was estimated as a category three and the most difficult. The group traveled by train to Ivdel, a city in the center of the northern province of Sertovarsk Oblast, in the early morning hours of the 25th of January 1959. They then took a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending a night at Vizhai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. Just bread, huh? That's yeah, not, I, I would need something more substantial than just bread. Yeah. Just saying. (laughs) Especially if it's cold. Yeah, even, you know, put something in the bread, have sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's cold outside, so you don't have to worry about it going bad, right? Just get, like, some turkey and bring along some, I don't know, something. You could take so much meats and cheese up there with you and Mm -hmm. and with your bread. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) On the 27th of January, they began their trek towards Otorten from Vizhai, and on the 28th of January, one of the members, Yuri Yudin, who was suffering from several health ailments, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, was forced to turn back due to a knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. That seems a little like if you are having a heart defect and rheumatism. My mom had terrible arthritis. She could hardly walk. I can't imagine somebody trying to hike a difficult trail in January with yeah, that problem. It- it seems kind of extreme. You know? Uh-huh. But I guess, you know, I can understand maybe if he had been a hiker for a while and enjoyed it and didn't want to give it up, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to give up the things you love, but going for like the hardest one at the hardest time yeah. of the year, it's... Yeah. <laughs> Just go on a nice hike in springtime, yeah. maybe, you know, <laughs> when it's a little bit warmer and you don't have to be trudging through snow. <laughs> The remaining group of nine continued the trek without him. Before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed that he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai, 
It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before his departure from the group that he expected to be longer. So this is, what date is this again? January? Uh, the minute, this is January 28th when Yudin January 28th, and then they're going until February 12th, likely. Mm-hmm. And they're all just on some bread, huh? That's it? <laughs> I still can't get past the bread. <laughs> That's a long time to just eat bread. I don't. I would hope they had other supplies, but okay. Yeah, I'm hoping maybe they just picked up the bread closer to where they were hiking, right? So that it was fresher, and maybe they've got some supplies. Because okay. otherwise, yeah, yeah, I like bread, but not I mean, for that amount of time. Right. Yeah. I, maybe that was just a last minute. Oh, maybe we need bread for all the stuff that we already have. Let's stop. Pack, we forgot. We all forgot the sandwich the bread. supplies, but no bread. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when the twelfth passed and no message had been received, there was no immediate reaction, as delays of a few days were common in such expeditions. It was not until the relatives of the travellers demanded a rescue operation on February twentieth that the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteers and students and teachers. That's a long time. Yeah, so it's like a week shy of a month there. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah, that's not, that's more than a few days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could understand one or two days, but after that, get some people out there. Goodness. Later, the army and military forces became involved, with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. On February 26th, almost a month since they set out, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent. The campsite baffled the search party. The student who found the tent said the tent was half torn down and covered in snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. It was a yeti. Yeti attack. <laughs> Has to be. I, I like that your first thought was yeti. the the abominable snowman from rudolph the red-nosed reindeer he had a toothache and he needed a dentist diaries and cameras found around the campsite made it possible to track the group's route up the days preceding to the incident on the 31st of january the group had arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing in a wooded valley they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back and on the following day of February 1st, the hikers moved, started to move through the pass. It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side, but because of worsening weather conditions, including snowstorms and a decrease in visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west, up towards the top of Kolotsjeval. When they realised their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than moving 1.5 kilometres downhill to a forested area which would have offered some shelter. This is why you need GPS. <laughs> this True. is in the 50s. You yeah, don't get GPS. This is, this is, <laughs> this is extreme <laughs> camping. They should have waited 20 years, 30 years <laughs> to do this. <laughs> and, uh, your hobby's not not along enough technology-wise. You just, just hold off for yeah. 30 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Send your grandkids do this. <laughs> Yeah, live through your children. It's what the rest of us do. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yuri Yudin postulated that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained and decided to practice camping on the mountain slope instead. 
Upon investigating the campsite, the investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside. <gasps> what? Eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks and one who was wearing a single shoe could be followed. Oh. They led down towards the edge of a nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, one and a half kilometres away. Hmm. However, after... Around 500 metres, the tracks were covered in snow and could no longer be followed. Or the Yeti picked up the person <laughs> and carried them. But they didn't find any Yeti tracks. But maybe the Yeti had on snowshoes? I don't know. It's possible. They're near the woods. Maybe he used a branch and was doing that, that thing uh-huh. where you like, sweep your footprints away behind you. Yeah, Yetis are smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've had to stay hidden all these years. They've got to be smart. It's true. It's true. At the forest's edge, under a large pine tree, the searchers found visible remains of a small fire, along with two bodies. <gasps> they belonged to Drivonoshenko and Doroshenko. They were both shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. What? Oh, they were getting it on, huh? <laughs> That's the only explanation for that. Let's start a fire and sneak away from the others, because, you know... Why they not? need some private time. It's true. When you're hiking for, what, two weeks or whatever, sometimes you just can't wait. The mood hits and you <laughs> gotta go for it. The branches on the tree above them were broken up to a height of five meters. And then the Yeti found them. <laughs> but what a way to go. I mean. Getting it on and a Yeti turns up. It's, it's a fairly <laughs> unique way to go. <laughs> Between the pine tree and the camp, the searchers found three more bodies. Those of Dyatlov, Kolmogrova, and Slobodin. So they were up in the trees? Or No, this is... Else? It sounds like after they found the two under the trees, they then found... Oh, okay. Three others between the trees and the tent. I think they didn't find gotcha. them straight away. So oh. they're, they're, they're closer to the tent, but they found them after On the way the there. Two. Okay. Yeah. Um, they had seemed to have died in poses suggesting they were attempting to return to the tent. Hmm. So they were heading away from the woods. Mm-hmm. They were found separately at distances of 300, 480 and 630 metres away from the tree. Huh. Searching for the remains of the remaining four travellers took more than two months. Whoa. Yeah, it's hard to find people on a snow-covered mountain in winter, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I mean... This is true. You gotta wait for it to melt, huh? That helps. Yeah, especially as it just keeps snowing as well. And yeah, oh, yeah, so horrible. <laughs> yeah, the four of them were finally found on May fourth, under four meters of snow in a ravine, seventy-five meters further into the woods. Huh. The four of them were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the others. That's weird. Mm. Doesn't seem to quite make sense so far. No. Uh-uh. People died on the way back to the tent, but the guys who are further away from the tent have their clothes. Yeah. But it's, then it's weird. They were, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's creepy and very weird. And then you've got the fire in, mm-hmm. in there to mix things up a little bit. So you've got, so the way I'm picturing it in my mind, you've got, Pe- four what, four people in a ravine 
farthest away from the main campsite. Yep. And they gave their clothes to the people who are going back. No, it's the opposite way around. They've got the clothes of the people who went back. Oh, so maybe they got trapped down there and they found out about it and then they were going to go back, but the storm hit mm, while they were yeah, going to get that, more clothes. Yeah, and then the people were like, let's build a fire here in the middle so that we can warm up. And then the rest of them went back while the other two waited, maybe, or something. I don't know. That's creepy. And then, mm. yeah. Huh. Well, it's it's only going to get creepier. Hello. <laughs> yeah, the, the four bodies in the ravine. There's mm-hmm. some there's some stuff to them that we're going to get to that's going to The Yeti got them, didn't they? Oh my god. The goodness. Yeti did get them. Mm. They were, they were found with their limbs twisted to spell the words Yeti. <gasps> <laughs> You're joking. <laughs> yeah, that that one was a joke. <laughs> you almost had me there. That would have been really creepy. <laughs> a legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies. A medical examination found no injuries which might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that all had died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. An examination of the four bodies that were found in the ravine in May shifted the narrative as to what had happened. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Thibu Brigolnas had major skull damage and both Dubinia and Zolotreyov had major chest fractures. And these are the people in the ravine? Mm Mm-hmm. Could that have been caused by falling in? Well, according to the medical examiner the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparing it to the force of a car crash. (gasps) What? However, the bodies had no external wounds related to the bone fractures, as if they'd been subjected to a high level of pressure. Oh. So they've got massive internal injuries, like that of a car crash, but nothing on the outside of them. But if they weren't discovered until much later under how many, what, four meters of snow? Mm-hmm. What is, I, I'm sorry, I'm an American. We don't, <laughs> <laughs> we're not good with the metric system. But that's a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, a good amount. What if the snow crushed them, their bodies? Maybe they, they fell fell down and then got snowed on and got crushed. Hmm. It's, it's so like an avalanche kind of uh-huh. scenario. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Hmm. Or maybe the Yeti, like, scooped the snow on top of them after he stepped (laughs) on them. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Just throwing ideas out there. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we can do at the minute because nothing's adding up yet. Yeah. Major external injuries were found on Dubinia, however. She was missing her tongue, both eyes, and part of the lips. What? as well as facial tissue and fragments of skull bone. <gasps> oh, I wonder if an animal got to her. Maybe the Yeti likes soft tissue? <laughs> That's all the soft tissue that like a bird or something would eat out first, right? Yeah. Hmm. See, some claimed that she was found laying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow, 
and that these injuries would fall in line with putrefaction in a wet environment. Mm-hmm. So it's possible it happened that way as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But they're not 100% sure. Oh. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Mansi people that lived in the area may have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. Hmm. Investigation indicated that the nature of their deaths did not support this hypothesis, however. The hikers' footprints were were the only ones visible, and they showed no signs of a hand-to-hand struggle. Hmm. Although the temperature was very low, around minus 25 to minus 30 Celsius, or 13 to 22 Fahrenheit, with a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some of them only had one shoe, while others had no shoes and wore only socks. Some were found wrapped in snips of ripped clothes that seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. Oh, that's gruesome. Mm-hmm. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest files claimed that it stated six of the group's members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby or for, apart from the nine travellers. The tent had been ripped open from the inside. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Hmm. Traces of the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Mansi people, Dr. Boris Vosradeni stated Hmm. that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being. Because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Definitely a yeti then. Absolutely. Released documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs, however. There were no survivors of the incident, and at the time, the verdict was that the group members all died because of a compelling natural force. Oh. Huh. The inquest officially ceased on in May 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive, and photocopies of the case became available only in the 1990s, although parts of it were missing. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <gasps> now we're getting into conspiracy theory territory. Oh. <laughs> I told you, as a fan of the X-Files, you'll like this one. <laughs> yes. This is good stuff. I mean, it's terrible, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not... it, it's terrible for these guys, but it's it's been 60 years. We can... We can be entertained by the mystery okay. now. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, a number of theories surround the mystery. There is a theory that an avalanche caused the hikers' deaths. While initially popular, it has since been questioned. There is also a Yeti hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> so, yep, and a few other people went straight to Yeti as well. <laughs> <laughs> Had to be the um, Yeti. Always blame the Yeti. <laughs> oh. American skeptic author Benjamin Radford suggests as a more plausible, the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared an avalanche was imminent. It was better to have a potentially repairable slit in the tent than risk being buried alive in it. Mm. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One made a fire, hence the burnt remains, while the Mm -hmm. others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing. Mm. 
However, it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies were severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow. More than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. Mm -hmm. Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory, however, includes the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having ever taken place during the investigation. Blast. It's wrong. (laughs) An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed all over the area. The bodies were found within 10 days of the event, were covered with a very shallow layer of snow, and and had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. Hmm. Well, obviously, the Yeti, there was an avalanche, (laughs) but he was hungry, so he dug them out, and then he swept over his tracks with the branches. So maybe it was both. Yeti taking advantage of the avalanche. Yeah. Ah. Because why not? I mean, free meal, right? <laughs> and you don't have to work too much for it. Because if the avalanche killed them, it's like a free meal. You just have to, like, grab them out of the snow. <laughs> but they were still, I mean, the bodies were still there. So I guess he didn't eat them. But he just I wanted don't know. to look at them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> My pretty. <laughs> <laughs> They also concluded that there would have been more serious and different injuries caused by an avalanche because they would have been swept through the tree line. Mm-hmm. Over 100 expeditions to the region were held since the incident, and none of them have ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the era using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for an avalanche to have occurred. Well... The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident happened, there were no such conditions. Hmm. So avalanche is looking more and more likely to be ruled out at the minute. Okay, so not an avalanche. No, they, they seem to have found evidence that an avalanche would be impossible and not mountain at that time of year. Mm. So, Yeti is the top suspect then? (laughs) So far, it is the top suspect. (laughs) So, another hypothesis, which was popularized by Donnie Icar's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, is that the wind going through the mountain created a Kármán vortex, which could produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. Whoa. What? That's amazing. Yeah. According to the theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Huh. How how did he come up with this hypothesis, I wonder? Did he test this on people with this infrasound? Yeah, there, there have been some tests with, like, different infrasounds and um, the ways it can, like, affect people and like mess with the mind and perception and stuff that's interesting i've never heard of that before someone i i worked with um a couple of years ago that they were doing like a, a music degree uh-huh. and they were looking at how sounds 
and certain musics could help with people with depression and anxiety and things like that. So like uplift moods, but at the same time, he Mm -hmm. saw how it can affect them and alter them in a different way. And one of his final projects he did is a practical thing. He set up this room that had what just appeared to be an audio visual presentation in there, but he had this certain sound wave where if you spent more than 10 minutes in there would would cause your perception to go slightly off kilter and people who would go in this room would start thinking they're seeing like ghostly objects out of the corner of their eye and it would send them paranoid and stuff so yes sound can really really mess with your head well i feel like there was maybe an episode of mythbusters Mm. where they used something an experiment similar to that maybe because they had I don't know if it was Mythbusters, but I remember watching a show about this. And they had different cabins set up in this remote location. Mm. And they had people go in there and sit. And then they played the sound waves outside. And to see if people would feel like it was a haunted cabin or not. If that makes sense. To see if the sound would affect their mind to make them feel like it was haunted. And they Mm. tried to see if this would like explain why people think that some places are haunted. So I totally believe that that's a thing. And I can't remember what conclusions they had with that, but I have to go back and see if I can find that online somewhere because it was really fascinating. And, you know, it's amazing how that can affect people. So mm. nerd, that's a good hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. I've mm. I've not read that book yet. It's, it's mm-hmm. on my list of stuff to get because I do like to get a collection of stuff that relates to my episodes. So I, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to reading into that more. Yeah. And, seeing how that would affect people but i'm definitely gonna check out that mythbusters now as well <laughs> yeah i'll have to look it up and see if i can find it for you i don't i'm pretty sure it was mythbusters pretty sure i can't imagine what else it would have been because that sounds like something they would do right yeah yeah sounds up their street <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so Icar claimed that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave their tent by whatever means were necessary, including cutting it open from the inside, and then they then fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would have been unable to return to the tent. Mm. He said that the traumatic injuries suffered by the victims found in the ravine would have been the result of their stumbling over the edge in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Yeah, that makes sense. However, the one hole in that theory would be if they'd have fallen off the edge and landed on rocks, it would have caused external physical injuries Mm -hmm. which weren't present on the bodies. Mm, That's crazy. Maybe the sound was so powerful it crushed them from the inside. That is kind of terrifying, but... (laughs) Right? (laughs) Or it was the Yeti. (laughs) Or it was the Yeti. Maybe it was the sound of the Yeti's roar that <gasps> He's got an infrasound so roar. <gasps> um, <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. It all comes back to the Yeti. Some people believe that the incident was a military accident, which was then covered up. Mm. There are records of parachute mines being tested by the Russian military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Oh. Parachute mines detonate a metre or two before they hit the ground and produce similar damage to those experienced by the hikers, including heavy internal damage with very little external trauma. Oh. There were also glowing orbs reported in the sky in the general vicinity, which they claim could have been caused by such parachute mines. (gasps) Hmm. People believe that bodies were possibly moved 
and photographs of the tent show that it was apparently erected incorrectly, something that the experienced hikers would have been unlikely to do. Mm. This theory also speculates the use of radiological weapons, partly based on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing as well as bodies. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Some of the relatives also describe the bodies as having orange-like skin and grey hair. <gasps> what? That's creepy. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers and equipment instead of just some, and the skin and hair discoloration could be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months' exposure to the cold and the wind. Yeah. Huh. It's like for every theory, there's a perfectly logical reason to discount it. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's so, yeah. yeah. It's like each one of these is like, yeah, that works. Oh, that oh doesn't. no, oh, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Oh, no. oh, wait, yeah. <laughs> Unless the military caused a mini avalanche by testing mines that caused infrasound and it all combines together and they were doing it to catch a Yeti. Exactly. <laughs> I I think that, you know, you know, it, it could work. It, it makes sense, really. Initial suppression of files regarding the group's disappearance by Soviet authorities is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up, but the concealment of information regarding domestic incidents was a standard procedure in the USSR, and therefore far from peculiar. Mm -hmm. But how embarrassing would it be if the military was trying to catch a Yeti and then it got away? They couldn't let that information out. Yep. I mean, that's just embarrassing. Well, even with the released files in the 90s, some of it was redacted. So mm -hmm. even yeah. when they released it, they didn't release everything. Yeah. Or it was missing along before that. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. International Science Times posited that the hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which can include behavior known as paradoxical undressing, in which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. It is undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. However, the others in the group appeared to have acquired additional clothing from those who had died, which suggests that they were in sound mind enough to try and add layers. Yeah, see, that's the part that really is the clincher for me, that they didn't all die suddenly at the same time. Like, mm. something happened, and these people oh, yeah. were, you know, like, they didn't... And who knows, like, they were up there for so long, who knows how many days apart they could have died, even. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing, with, with it being such cold environments, the, the yeah. timeline could be so skewed by right. body preservation. Yeah. And I want to know how they're so sure that the tent was cut from the inside. Honestly, I didn't think about that and look into it, but I'm assuming it's got to be from the way the fabric was was cut you can tell what side mm -hmm. of the fabric it would have been mm -hmm. like i believe that mm. i just you know i went more i'm that part yeah. really caught my but, attention but then also if if some theories are suggesting the tent was put up by the military covering something up could mm -hmm. they have put the tent on inside out and it was actually cut from the outside originally or mm -hmm. i don't know yeah mm. you're making me questioning things now <laughs> <laughs> This is what I get for doing research about murdering people for my books. Thank I God you have added to... for your books then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am a writer and this is all fictional. 
I never killed anyone and never plan to. So, but yeah, I mean, I have to, I have to look up the stuff, the stuff like forensics and mm. all that kind of stuff. I research a lot of because it's interesting to me because I need to know for my books. You gotta, you gotta make it believable. <laughs> so that's what I would question. Yeah. How do they know it was from the inside? Because if it, I mean, that's yeah. I, to me that's an important thing to note. Because yeah, if they were inside and panicked and had to like, is it somebody trying to get in or somebody trying to get out? Like that's a key element right there. Because yeah, if somebody was trying to, oh yeah, because like, it changes the, the whole yeah story, isn't it? Yeah. So that's why I'm curious about that part. Well, honestly, I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't no. answer that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just another piece of the puzzle, I guess. In 2014, the Discovery Channel aired a special titled Russian Yeti the Killer Lives. <gasps> this explored the theory that the Dyatlov group was killed by a menk or a Russian Yeti. The show begins with the premise that the skier's injuries were such that could only a creature with supernatural strength could have caused them. However, by the episode's conclusion, they presented no evidence for their claims. Mm. So, nothing to back up the Yeti, unfortunately. Mm. I still think it's the best best route to go. But... It's Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it's you know, unless, I, I'm pretty sure it was the military hunting a Yeti and these people got caught in the middle. I do fiasco. really like that theory now. Mm-hmm. Yep. To this day, what happened on that mountain is still unknown, and these strange deaths continue to baffle and confuse investigators. The pass that the incident took place on was renamed Dyatlov Pass in commemoration of the leader of the expedition and all those who lost their lives in the mysterious circumstances. So that's kind of the end of the story. We still have yeah. no idea what happened. And that is it so bugs creepy. the crap out of me all the time. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, Did they ever I've known find about this any... one for years. And yeah. I, I always come back to thinking about what happened there. I mean, the world may never know. But was there blood anywhere? Like, no one, would, no one had injuries that would suggest, like, blunt force trauma or, you know, any, like being eaten or anything like that, right? No. From, from all of the reports, there was no external physical injuries like no cuts or yeah stab it's wounds, the shoes wounds, like nothing the half-dressed business is so strange mm. and the fact that you don't know how and when they all died and what like it's just it's such a mystery it's so intriguing yeah so was this the one that you were yes. thinking about at the beginning <laughs> it yes. was yeah uh, i'm pretty sure when you mentioned the discovery channel uh, special. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's where I first heard about it. Ah, um, I was thinking you might have a different yeah. story then and got all excited. No, no. <laughs> yeah, this I just because when you the I didn't know the name of it with the title mm. that you had said it was, but then once you started saying like the hikers and the snow, and then once you mentioned the shoes, I was like, yeah, that's it. I knew that one. But um, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating story. Yeah. And really creepy. Mm. Yeah, I just like the fact that there are so many theories and all of them work up uh -huh. to a point and then they really don't. Yeah. It's like, well, what is the explanation? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't get over it. 
Yeah. It's like, um, it almost, I know this is a strange comparison, but I promise it'll make sense. <laughs> I just finished reading The Murder on the Orient Express. Mm-hmm. And it's, have you read that one? I've or not, no. Yeah. Well, I don't want to give everything away, but <laughs> it's, um, it's got all these different theories and it's a very similar sort of, well, maybe this person didn't, but they couldn't have because they had this alibi or maybe this person had this object that was found here. So maybe they did it, but they have another, they were somewhere else. And it's kind of similar to that where it's like all these theories that don't quite pan out, but then Mm. the reality of it is something much bigger. And then it all makes sense. You're like, Oh, so I think, it's quite possible maybe it is a little bit of everything yeah. of all those theories. Like, it, it, it might not be just one thing. Like, maybe the Yeti got the people and left them in the ravine, and then the military knew the Yeti was in the area, so they were f- sending bombs to destroy the Yeti and got the rest of the people. <laughs> and I don't know. I, that's in the sound waves from the bombs created the infrasound that scared mm. everybody else. I don't know. It's it could be anything really, but or maybe they just there's no time. I think was there any theory at any point other than just the the um indigenous people that suggested murder or maybe it was maybe the one person murdered the rest of them or they all went, you know, or maybe they were taking drugs. I don't know. Was there any I guess a talk screen might not have held up after so many weeks and months. I don't know. How is there an expiration on that? But I I've not seen any other theory that suggests sort of like any anyone else possibly mm-hmm. attacking them other than it being possible military or or the indigenous people, but mm. I suppose it it's possible maybe something in the food or or drink could have had some sort of effect on them, but well, we know tested from, for that at that time as well. It could have very yeah, easily been overlooked. We know as X Files fans that there is that toxin that's found in wheat. Mm. Remember from the tattoo episode? Never, was it Never Again? Where he gets the tattoo and it was made from the, I think, right? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, there, and it there poisoned was something, him. Yeah. So maybe that bread is the key. <laughs> maybe the bread had that toxin in it and when they all sat down to eat it they went crazy yeah and died maybe because they picked that up at a local Mm -hmm. village maybe because the mountain was considered sacred to the mansi people the the local villagers decided not to have them go up there Mm -hmm. out of respect for the mansi and did something yeah Mm mm-hmm hmm I like this. You you come up with more theories that I hadn't even considered. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there is, I need to look it up. There is that toxin that comes from wheat. It's like a mold or something, I think. Mm. I need to look up the name of it. But I know that exists, thanks to Scully. Um, (laughs) That's definitely a real X-File. But yeah, um, maybe it was the bread. Maybe they should have just left that bread where it was on the shelf. If it was, it could have been old. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a lot of people go through there, right? Mm. Especially in January. And it's not necessarily something that, you know, like maybe the shopkeeper was like, hey, get some business. 
finally <laughs> sure that bread's good it hasn't been there that long it's fine take it i don't know but yeah maybe it was the bread mm. and the bread. yeti mm-hmm yeah, well, you got to get the Yeti in every theory because it's the most original one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the villagers were feeding the people poisoned bread to distract so that the Yeti could get to them. Mm. Like if they killed them off with the bread and then it'd be like, here, Yeti, here's your annual sacrifice. But then the military showed up and the Yeti had to lickety split out of there so he wouldn't get caught. So he didn't get his meal sacrifices to the yay i like that theory mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. so mm. yeah oh, so many new ideas now <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe i should write my own book yeah here you go an idea for the next one <laughs> yeah <laughs> this was a good story thank you i'm glad that you picked this one it's it's, in, it's very um interesting and there's a lot of possibilities there Good. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm always worried when I get a new guest on to <laughs> figure out their tastes and the kind of stories to pick for them. But I thought this one's a bit weird. It's got a little bit of, is it supernatural? Is it conspiracy? It's like, she's into X-Files. She might like this. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's very X-Files-y. If Mulder had been around at that point, you know, oh, I'm sure yeah. he would have lost his shit over this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure he researched it at some point in his life. That I would not be surprised if there was an X-File in one of those drawers about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, if people enjoyed this and want to find you online or find your work with your books, can where can they do that? Um, my book is on Amazon. It's on Kindle can Unlimited. Yes, everybody can hear you. Yes. <laughs> my daughter. Um, yes, you can find my book. It's called Darkness Shifting. It's available on Amazon and paperback, and it's available on Kindle Unlimited if you subscribe to Kindle Unlimited. And um, Kimmy. hopefully I will have the sequel out some point soon. Okay, give me two minutes, and then we'll go play. Okay. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Sarah L. Blair, S-A-R-A-H-L-B-L-A-I-R. And you can find me over at the X-Cast podcast along with Amy. So that's always fun to talk about the X-Files. I'm a huge fan of the X-Files. If you like the X-Files, you'll probably like my book. <laughs> There's a lot of paranormal and, um, and procedural stuff in there. So, yeah, it's good times. <laughs> Definitely people should go check that out. And I, I'm just added your book onto my Amazon basket. So I'll be picking that up because, yeah, definitely need to read through that. <laughs> yeah, you'll understand why I'm a huge Skinner fan after you read my book. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you can find us by going to Twitter at eccentric underscore earth. Our Facebook is facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. And we're on Instagram. You can find us on all major podcast providers and YouTube. So make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks. I'm going to go do mommy stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you have fun with that one. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. It was great talking to you. I appreciate yeah. you having me on. No, definitely. I'll, I'll have to get you on again with another weird one. Yes, absolutely. I would love it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much and uh, catch you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.